You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and thanks for being here. My guests are Jeff Grinovisky. He is an associate professor of political science at Wayne State University, and Rebecca Sinderbrand. She is the political editor at The Washington Post. We are talking about the field of candidates for the 2016 presidential contest. Donald Trump on the Republican side, Hillary Clinton on the Democratic side. Both had interesting paths to the nomination. Both left a lot of people in their party. Parties feeling dissatisfied with the result, feeling dissatisfied with the process itself. Some Democrats say they're going to vote for Bernie Sanders anyway, even though he didn't win. They felt like the system was rigged uh, and that uh, Hillary Clinton was chosen through means that left them out or disenfranchised them. Uh, some people are on the Republican side say they can't vote for Donald Trump uh, because of the things that he says. Uh, how are you feeling about this political cycle and the choices that we're left with? Give us a call, 313-577-1019 to join the conversation. That's 313-577-1019. Let's go to Dan in Detroit. Dan, welcome to Detroit today. You there, Dan? Yes, I'm uh-huh. here. Go ahead. You know, I would like to see more public involvement in the major issues like gun control. Why don't they put an assault weapon ban to the people and let the people decide <laughs> on whether or not they want to ban? Why don't they put 30-round clips? Who needs a 30-round clip? And so what you're saying, Dan, is that, you, I mean, you want more direct democracy, right? You want more of the people deciding for themselves what happens as opposed to electing uh, candidates to make those, uh, those decisions in legislatures or in executive positions. All of those major decisions are being based on campaign contributions and not on what the public wants. And I think that if they put it to the people, I think we would ban assault rifles. If you have one, you can keep it. You're not allowed to sell it. You're not allowed to loan it out. And if you do, it's a felony. Doesn't that make sense? Uh, well, it makes sense to me. I think that you have a lot of uh, gun advocates who, who might disagree with at least some of those uh, provisions. But I guess I, I think your point, Dan, is that we ought to be able to decide for ourselves and not go through uh, the political process uh, to, to, to have those things done. Another uh, example is health care for all. Just put it out there. Let the people vote on it. Do you want health care for all? Do you want everyone to be covered? Do you want to pay a little bit more in taxes so everybody has health care? It would bring the cost down for everyone. It would probably be actually a revenue neutral for most people. Dan, I like your sensibilities. (laughs) Thanks very much. Uh, uh, Thanks very much for the call. Uh, uh, Professor Grinovitsky, talk about that, that sense of dissatisfaction that it's uh, the the process itself is so uh, compromised by money, uh, by the parties and the institutional interests of the parties that you can't get things done. Uh, Dan says, let's go back to more direct democracy. I, I totally understand the appeal of more, more direct democracy on an issue like gun control because it's very cut and dry. Like, do we want people walking around with these assault weapons or not? And it doesn't seem like it's connected to broader sets of public policy questions in any kind of complicated ways. But I think if we were to put it to the American people, whether they want to increase government services, Dan talked about making healthcare affordable or available to everyone. I think probably a majority of Americans would say yes in some way, shape or form. But at the same time, if you were to put it to the American people, whether we should increase or decrease their taxes, I think a majority of people would 
vote to decrease their taxes. And, and the result would be kind of an incoherent set of public policies. And I think if you look at states like California that really have a lot of where direct democracy is more prevalent, you really kind of see these kind of perverse sets of choices being right. adopted. And, and, it, and it makes it difficult for ordinary, ordinary Americans to decide who to hold accountable Right. On election day, like right. like if I voted for universal health care and tax cuts, do I blame the Democrats or Republicans when when we <laughs> it's our we have fault to, uh, when the debt ceiling gets reached again? And uh, and and so, um, like I I my, I kind of lean against uh, direct democracy because I really want to be able to know who the elected officials are who are making the decisions on my behalf and if i'm happy i can reward them and if i'm dissatisfied i can throw the rascals out yeah yeah uh, uh rebecca cinderbren political editor at the washington post that that idea of uh, compromised public officials making decisions that the people themselves could maybe make a lot easier or a lot more clearly uh, that that under that sort of undergirds this this idea that there's something wrong with the way we're doing things right now i'm not sure that uh, that dan's suggested alternative uh, would be terribly popular but i think his sentiment is is pretty common mm-hmm. well of course you know clearly the sentiment is very common people feel very disconnected from the process yeah. you know one of the the interesting things of course is as the professor points out it it's the experiments when it comes to direct democracy have had a very mixed result sure. in part because it's very difficult to expect people to be fully read in on all of the very, you know, the details of policy platform. It's not all as simple as, you know, if you could boil everything down to a one line, does this make sense to you? Does this not make sense to you? That's fine. But the fact of the matter is some <laughs> of these are very complicated. Way, Most yeah. things don't work that way. <laughs> and, and some of these are very complicated proposals. And so, you know, one of the ways our system works is we depend on, you know, paying people who their job is supposed to be to learn all they can about these issues, and then we choose the person who we think would best represent our sensibility, our point of view, when it comes to examining these issues in depth in a way that people with very busy lives just frankly don't have a chance to and don't have the expertise to and wouldn't necessarily even want to spend their time doing. Um, So, you know, when you put these issues on the ballot, what you have is a lot of times the the discussion and the debate seems to boil down to kind of the lowest common denominator to those, you know, sound bites, things that kind of are catchier that resonate with people on an emotional level, uh, but don't necessarily translate into real world solutions. And so, you know, it's very complicated. It's one of those things that in a perfect world, you would love to have a system where everyone would be completely read in on all issues and only make super informed, unemotional decisions and, and be able to have the time to weigh in on every single question. Um, but there are hundreds and hundreds of decisions that have to be made every single year. And so we hope that our elected officials can, you know, figure out a way to do their jobs and, and vote on the issues and represent us. And, you know, it's not a perfect system, but that's the way it works right now. Sure. Uh, if you think about the recent vote in, in Britain, the Brexit vote, I mm-hmm. mean, this is a great example of uh, where direct democracy sometimes leaves people uh, uh, thinking thinking afterwards more about the vote than they did uh, before. I mean, you think about the, the, the polls that showed 
people second guessing that outcome almost as soon as uh, as it as it was adopted. And there you're talking about a very significant uh, policy change that probably most of the people who went into the booth and voted didn't quite understand all of the the various dynamics and layers. And then, and then it comes into the protest vote as well. So again, those are people who felt as though they weren't being heard. They wanted to send a message. They didn't necessarily want the outcome that they got. And yeah. so because they didn't have, feel they had another way to kind of make their voice heard, probably a majority of the country may not actually want what's happening at, at the very most, a very slim majority at the very most. And so you have a huge number of people who are going to be left with an all or nothing and are going to completely um, lose out on that system. And so that's that's not a perfect system by any stretch either. Yeah. All right. Uh, coming up next, we're going to continue talking about this dissatisfaction with the political process. We're going to talk specifically about superdelegates and frustration with the political parties. I want to thank Rebecca Cinderbrand, the political editor at The Washington Post, for joining us for those first two segments. Uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much. Yes. Uh, and stay with us on the phones, 313-577-1019. What do you think about superdelegates? What do you think about this political process that we go through every four years to select presidential nominees? 313-577-1019 is the number. Stay with us on Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and thanks for being here. A couple months ago, Democrats in Maine approved a change at their convention that would get rid of superdelegates by the next presidential election in 2020. Maine is the first state to get rid of the special classification for delegates, and since then, Democrats in several other states are considering similar changes. The amendment in Maine was brought by State Representative Diane Russell, who wrote to the Democratic National committee, quote, we cannot in good conscience deny that there is a growing frustration among working and middle class people well beyond Maine with the tone deafness of the elected representatives of the People's Party. We have always been the party of the hardworking, the voiceless, and the downtrodden, but by upholding the special privileges of superdelegates, we are betraying the people we fight for to service an unjust archaic, and anti-democratic institution. Uh, I'm pleased to welcome Diane Russell, Democratic State Representative in Maine, to the program. She is in New Hampshire for the Clinton-Sanders Unity Rally. Diane, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning, and thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, uh, and we are still joined, of course, by uh, Jeff Grinovisky, Associate Professor of Political Science at Wayne State University, and we want to hear from you on the phones about what you think about superdelegates, what you think about the two political parties and the way they choose their nominees for president, 313 1019 is the number. Uh, Diane Russell, talk about uh, this move in Maine to get rid of superdelegates. Was it controversial? Was it something that that started a big argument? Uh, Or is it something that people uh, just sort of said, look, it's time to change the way we do this. Uh, It's time to to make uh, more people part of the process and take away these sort of special choices that, that some people have. Well, thanks for the question. You know, if you want to build a fair economy that works for everyone, which is what Democrats really work hard to do, you first have to build a fair election system that works for everyone. 
Uh, we come from the idea that one person should equal one vote, and the superdelegate system creates an unequal uh, system where w- certain people have more of a voice than others and more of a vote. And I just think that that is not the way that we should be electing the, um, the our nominating process should be for the leader of the free world. I can't speak for Republicans. Um, I don't know that anybody can at this point, so I can't really speak to their system. <laughs> but I do think what we saw in Maine was indicative of some of, uh, you know, we tapped into an artery of, of frustration and anger that I didn't, I certainly didn't expect. Um, you know, less than uh, two and a half months later, 20 states across the country state parties have actually passed some sort of resolution. I believe 18 of them were passed at state conventions by voice vote um, or by some sort of vote. So it's been a remarkable shift. And yes, there's certainly a debate, and there was certainly a debate in Maine. Um, there are people who like the superdelegate system, um, but the overwhelming majority was uh, opposed to it. And now we've introduced, um, you know, I didn't expect this uh, movement to ignite in the way that it did. Uh, but now I've introduced, uh, as you read the letter, uh, a, a similar amendment at the national level that would actually strike uh, Article 2, Section 4H from the Democratic Party con- uh, state, uh, Party Charter, uh, which actually is the so-called superdelegate section. Um, there's been a lot of, you know, I think, uh, poor behavior towards superdelegates themselves, which I don't think is the way to deal with the system, attacking good people because you disagree with their position uh, personally is not a good path forward. I think that attacking the superdelegate system itself, and, you know, superdelegates are actually unpledged party leader and elected official positions. They're designated by the DNC. Going after that system um, and, and essentially abolishing it is really an important step toward not just democratizing the Democratic Party, but also uh, to building rebuilding some trust and faith uh, with folks who we need to vote this fall to defeat Donald Trump uh, on the Bernie Sanders side, which is where I am. Yeah. Uh, so here, here's a, a, a question uh, that, that sort of takes an opposite view of, of this. The idea behind superdelegates uh, was to, to vest in, in uh, people who have uh, a lot of investment themselves in the party, stakeholders, uh, elected officials, uh, the ability to push back against uh, uh, people who are not Democrats, people who are not part of the party, but who show up uh, to, to to vote as as members of the Democratic Party uh, or not, as a way of influencing uh, an institution that has values and and uh, principles that these sort of uh, invested uh, entities want to protect. I mean, it's like. It's like any other. Someone earlier on the show talked about the parties essentially being private clubs. Uh, And if you are that kind of private club, you want to prevent people who are not really members of the club from coming in and changing it uh, sort of sua sponte. Uh, You want to invest in some mechanism to sort of preserve that that institution uh, and superdelegates are, are, are uh, I guess uh, the, the defenders of this would say that's the rate that's the way to do that uh, you, you give more of a voice to those who have more of an investment what's the what's the problem with that thinking 
Well, as a woman, I've seen private clubs completely uh, shut my gender out. Of course. When you look at the superdelegates, you know, Pew uh, Research did an analysis of the 2016 delegates. 58% are men. Yes. Only 20% are African-American, and only 11% are Hispanic. If that's the kind of club that we want in the Democratic Party, I'm all set with that because it doesn't represent me. Right. And I think that we need to get away from this private club mentality and start opening the doors. Democracy was never meant to be a private club where only the elite are able to participate. We need a democracy where one person genuinely equals one vote. And we've worked, you know, we're going to be going to Philadelphia where the Constitution was created. And when it was created, it was only white men, almost just white men with property, Property but only white men who were able to vote. We had to fight. You know, women died. They were jailed uh, in order to have the right to vote. African-Americans, you know, had to fight for the right to vote. Um, And then they had to fight poll taxes. This is not the democracy that I want to go back to. We have created a system where one person truly equals one vote. And we need to make sure that we have that in the democratic nominating process. I get that people are frustrated that um, that the Republicans didn't have that type of superdelegate system to mitigate Donald Trump. But the fact of the matter is the Republican Party has been generating and ginning up racist rhetoric for some time. Sure. Donald Trump is the natural conclusion of that. And I'm less concerned about Donald Trump and more concerned about the person that comes before. Uh, behind him. Sure, sure. The Democrats are not a party that is about xenophobia and misogyny and all of those things that we're seeing out of the presidential uh, primary or the presidential side from the Republicans. Yeah. Um, I, I want to take uh, some phone calls here. we got a lot of folks who want to participate uh, in this uh, conversation. Let's go to Scott in Lake Orion. Scott, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks, Steve. Uh-huh. Uh, my comment, I guess, would be that uh, I, I find the superdelegate system to be anti-democratic and a manipulation of, of the people's will. But on the other hand, as previous caller said, the, the party is a private club and they can set the rules they like. And if voters find that kind of manipulation to be offensive, they shouldn't vote for the party. They shouldn't vote for the lesser of two evils because it just perpetuates the problem. Right. Right. Um, Scott, I mean, are, are you more likely or less likely to believe in the Democratic Party, party or the process uh, because of superdelegates? I mean, is it, does, it really, does it really influence the way that you either make choices in the ballot box or, or think of yourself you know, as either a Democrat or an independent or a Republican uh, generally? Well, I, I think... I don't think the process changes how I'm going to vote. Um, it, it it may change who the candidate is, but sure. I'm I'm one of the sincere voters, so I'm not going to vote for Hillary to, uh, you know, to to make sure Trump doesn't get elected. I don't think she's the candidate for me. I'm not going to vote for her. Uh, simple as that. Right. So by whatever process the party selects its candidate, if that's not a candidate I can get behind. I'm not going to vote for that. And you're fine. You're fine saying I'll make another choice. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, Scott, thank you very much for the call uh, and for those thoughts. Let's go to Herb in Northville. Herb, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. Um, So there's a lot of... I mean, there's a lot of high rhetoric here about about, about the the overall thing, overall principles of it, but as a practical matter, since 
superdelegates were introduced for the 1984 cycle, they have never overruled the verdict of the pledged delegates of the primary process. Right. It the hasn't delegates. happened. Yeah. They've never done so, and they didn't do so this time. Um, now, that said, there, you know, there's certainly there's certainly room to dis- you know to discuss you know ways to change it. But remember who the superdelegates are. Right. For example, here in Michigan, our superdelegate, our superdelegate, you know, the people we have as superdelegates include two United States senators and five members of Congress. Yes. I mean, are we really are we really going to put them going to tell? Are we are really trying to order a Gary Peters or a Debbie Stabenow? You must support, you know, a can you know one candidate over another candidate just because of the. No, we already elected those people to Congress to represent us, and this is just another aspect of them representing yeah. us. I mean, again, this now, idea that that they have. Uh, a certain amount of investment in the party uh, that they are stakeholders at a different level than somebody who just shows up to, to to cast a ballot on election day. And I can I'll talk a little more about how Michigan chose our superdelegates. I mean, we I was at the meeting last month where that where that happened, and if you remember back in March, Michigan did vote did did give Bernie Sanders a remarkable victory, but it was in the end a two point win, yeah. about fifty percent to a little over forty eight percent. And our delegation that we're sending to Philadelphia later this month reflects that. Yeah, we had we had separate caucuses where they were where they did pick you know delegates pledged to Bernie, delegates pledged to Hillary, and we took great strides to address what earlier scholars yeah. said about, you know, great strides to make sure that our delegation will be as diverse as humanly as possible, possible. Yeah. racially, Herb, gender-wise, and all that. Herb, thanks very much uh, for that call. Uh, quickly, uh, Jeff Grinovisky, what's your take on this whole superdelegate thing? Um, I think my opinion probably lines pretty closely with Herb's yeah. in the sense that um, the superdelegates have never disagreed with the will of the Democratic primary electorate. And so, um, like, so far, they're kind of the dog that didn't bark in the night, or whatever right. the expression yeah. is. But, but, but I mean, I, I, I think uh, what Representative Russell would say is that uh, it's there's a principle here, right, Representative Russell, that, that regardless of the outcome, there's a principle here of, of assigning more power to some people than others. Yeah, there's a couple of things that I'd like to respond to. Um, first, you know, I am an elected official. I have access to the people that I need to influence. And so we already have an outsized voice in comparison to everyday voters who may not have um, certain people on their speed dial, who may not have access to the reporters that can help influence and shape the outcome. Um, so we already have an outside vo- and, and a much bigger voice as it is. We also have a party leader elected official pledged delegate position. Now, right. that's what I ran for to become a national delegate. I didn't run for a general grassroots position. I ran for a party leader elected official position. The difference is that I ran as a pledged delegate, not an unpledged delegate. Yeah. But I also want to push back against this notion that the, you know, we keep saying that the superdelegates did not overturn um, uh, the will of the voters. And there's truth to that, and there's some, but there's a lot of gray area with that. So in Maine, we had an overwhelming majority of people. It was 63% who supported Bernie Sanders, and then most of our superdelegates were actually going to be pledged to Hillary. That is actually going in opposition to the popular vote. Now, it's not the national popular vote for sure, but it certainly is within my state. But the other piece to this is that the unpledged delegates were unpledged for a reason. They were not supposed to pledge until 
they got to the convention, to the convention right? They were not sure. supposed to do that. Yeah. And so what happened, and you'll see the Pelosi Club, Nancy Pelosi and, and Christina Pelosi, her daughter, have been very uh, active in, in actively saying we are not pledging until at least the last um, yeah. vote is taken across the country. So by pledging early, they have actually changed the um, direction. Because it's... every time you see a state like Maine or Washington where the vote was overwhelmingly one way yeah. and then the delegate count isn't moving because these superdelegates are, contra- are are in sharp contrast, that is actually affecting the outcome yeah. of the election yeah. because it's affecting the headlines. Yeah. Uh, Representative Diane Russell, a state rep from Maine, thank you very much uh, for, for joining us and making those really important points. Uh, thank you. Thanks, Jeff Brenovisky, Associate Professor of Political Science at Wayne, for joining us as well. My pleasure. All right, I'll be back tomorrow. Hope you will, too. I, uh, this is 101.9 WDT Detroit, Wayne State's public radio station. And we'll talk to you later.